The day of the Lord is coming, burning like an oven. Who can endure it? The day of the Lord is an idea that shows up in the prophets. And if you remember, the prophets, as they are written, show up in the era of the kings. So after David, after Solomon, after the collapse of the kingdom into two different kingdoms, north and south, after the north continues to follow the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nabat, that's a couple of golden cows that they worship. Eventually, God is going to begin sending new preachers to try to bring them back. As Judah also then begins to worship at the high places and to intermarry with the house of Ahab and have all sorts of Baal worship going on, these prophets show up and their job is to say to Israel, you're a sign. You are a picture. You've been set here amidst all the nations to show that God is holy and that he can only have holiness. And if he doesn't have holiness, he will burn it with fire. And this is right here written for you in Moses, right here in Deuteronomy. He actually says to you, you're going to fail at this, and then you will be spit out of the land. You will be sent away captive, and that too as a sign. Because after you're sent away captive, God is going to save you. He's going to bring you back and put you back in the land. Now, the day of the Lord is all of that. But as the prophets begin to preach it initially, it's a whole lot of you're going to get kicked out of the land. So as we look at Isaiah talking about the day of the Lord, but also in context of that First Thessalonians reading a moment ago on this Christ the King Sunday, we have some work to do to, to parse this open a little bit. Isaiah is definitely going to be talking about the day of the Lord in the judgment, bad news, watch out, you don't want to be there kind of way. Which for us Christians does mean judgment day, which is yet coming for non-Christians as well. The day of the Lord as God judges Judah and Jerusalem and casts them out of the land is not any different from the day of the Lord when Jesus will return. And those who do not know him will find themselves outside the gates and they will be cast into the pit of fire that is called hell. These are all kind of the same thing. Remember how I said it's a sign. Judah was a sign. A sign of what? Of the bigger picture. Their history and their life, their fall and their resurrection are a microcosm, a small image of the big idea, which is Adam's fall into sin and Jesus' entry into mankind to save us from that fall into sin. And so, just as the Exodus coming out of slavery in Egypt is the same as you being saved from your sins and being led into the promised land of eternal life on the day of resurrection, so also the captivity in Babylon and the restoration to the land is a picture of your captivity under sin, death, and the devil, and the restoration that Jesus has paid for, has bought with the price for you, has given you a deposit of in the Holy Spirit that makes you now believe this, but which is yet still coming for your body on the day of resurrection. Again, all of this is the day of the Lord, okay? So, 
the thing about the prophets that makes them most challenging to understand is that they're always looking at like two or three pictures at once. And we, on the other side of much of what they saw, only get to look forward to some of what they were looking at. Uh, the best analogy I've heard of this, I, I don't think this is perfect, so, so don't go to the bank with this one, but it's helpful to kind of get the idea. The best analogy for someone like Isaiah is that almost all the time he's looking at the end of the world. Almost everything he says is about the end of the world, but the end of the world is like a mountain way over there in the distance, and he's far off on the plain. And so as he looks at that mountain in the distance, he's at such a level that other areas on the mountain look like they're part of the same exact peak. But if you ever climb up a mountain that looks like one peak from a distance, you know that as you get closer, it's not one peak. It's up and down a little and up and down a little and up and down a little. And so you have many peaks on the way to the same peak. And that's kind of the way that, again, these prophecies work. So we're going to get here in a couple of weeks. The virgin will conceive and bear a son. Uh, well, how did that prophecy get kept if it didn't take place in Isaiah's life? This is an important question. If a prophet comes about in Israel and says, this is going to happen and this is the sign and it doesn't happen, you know what you're supposed to do? You're supposed to kill that guy. And you're not supposed to keep his book and put it in the temple and read it all the time. But they kept his book, and they put it in the temple, and they read it all the time. Why? Well, the sign must have come true. Am I saying there was another virgin birth? No. No, and scholars will argue about this. You'll find the liberal atheist online saying, don't you know, virgin means maiden. It can mean just a young woman. She doesn't have to be a virgin. And see, therefore, Jesus wasn't born of a virgin. Well, stupid, stupid, stupid. Ignore those people. But they're playing with a little bit of information that is true, which is that the word can mean two different things. And so when, and the, the, the base are, are out there, is the potential fulfillment, we'll get there in chapter 7, is the potential fulfillment the birth of Hezekiah? Or is it the birth of Isaiah's own sons? Um, what is the sign that is given at that time? Uh, whatever it is, whatever it was, you're looking at the mountain from a distance, and it was just a picture, it was just a sign, it was just a symbol of what was really going to happen, which is Jesus being born to Mary. So Isaiah and Amos and Joel and Jeremiah, they're always seeing all of it at once. And now we're living on the other side of them seeing the foothills, but we're well up into those foothills now. In fact, you might even say we've come to the real peak, which was the death and resurrection of Jesus. And yet on the other side of the death and resurrection of Jesus, there seems to be another valley we go into before we come back to the final restoration of all things. Remember how the apostles before Jesus' ascension, they ask him, is it over? Are you going to now restore the kingdom of Israel? It's all done now, right? He says, it's not for you to know. And then off he takes into the sky and the angels show up and the angels say, you know, he'll come back just like that. So you go do what he said to do, go preach. Yeah. And so here we are again in this little valley of a moment between the death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus and his restor restoration of all things on the last day. But his death, that was the day of the Lord. That was the day when vengeance was poured out on the nations. That's the day when every sin was dealt with according to the harsh judgment of God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Not one sin was left unpaid for at that moment. And yet the day of the Lord is not over yet. It's still coming. 
And indeed, on Judgment Day, those who don't want Jesus to cover their sins, well, they're going to pay for them, their sins themselves. They'll get the judgment, the harsh reality, the wrath of what they fully deserve. So now, going back to Isaiah specifically, we're going to be looking at that day of the Lord, which is about Jesus' death and resurrection, about his return, but is also about God needing to punish Jerusalem and punish Judah for their unbelief and send them into captivity in Babylon, even though they're also, they're going to repent of this, so it's going to get put off for another generation and a half before it actually happens. But the text isn't going to say that in chapter 2. Chapter 2 is kind of a, a, an opening salvo of how, yes, God has to have wrath. He has to. He must punish evil. And so since this people he's talking to, their hearts are far from him, and they've pretended to worship him while not really believing in him, well, he's going to expose that. Now, we're going to look at just what we had read this morning, which is two different sections. And if you noticed, I put them in reverse order. We first listened to verses 12 through 18, and then we went back and picked up on verses 2 through 4. And the reason for that is, is because I really didn't want to start with the happy news and then end with the bad news. That's not, that's not the way we Lutherans like to do law and gospel, right? We don't want to tell you that you're saved and then tell you that you're a sinner. Uh, we like to do it the other way around. And, and I think that's good. I think that's wise in general. But the thing is, that's not how it's laid out in the text. So step back again for a moment. Oh, I should tell you, you can, you can turn to page 567 in your pew Bible, by the way. That's where chapter 2 is going to start. Um, but then let me give you one more little bit, a reminder about the, the structure here, right? We're looking at chapters 1 through 12 over a 10-week period. Chapter 1 is a summary that kind of explains everything. Chapter 6 is a middle point, a hinge point, at which Isaiah tells you how he got called. So chapters 2 through 5 are kind of a section, and chapters 7 through 12 are kind of a section. Although chapter 5 has its own little unique part to it. And now, getting narrower, chapters 2 through 4 then are a section. And in that section, chapters 2 through 4, Isaiah starts out with some really good news, and then he immediately turns into lots of bad news. And then at the very end, he gives you a little good news again. It's something called a chiasm. It's, it's a Hebrew way of, of focusing on things where you have like bookends on the outside and a big chunk in the middle. Uh, the challenge with the chiasm as poetry is that the important part, what you're supposed to pay attention to, is always in the middle, not the outside. And here we have the good news on the outside. Well, well don't, don't take that to the bank too hard. Don't miss the good news. We're going to save it for last, in fact, so you don't miss it. We are going to start with chapter uh, 2, verse 13, which again will be on um, 2, verse 12. It'll be on page 568. But notice how uh, uh, Isaiah isn't worried about some sort of law gospel preaching paradigm. He's not trying to follow a pre-constructed way of making sure we do it right. What he's doing is he's saying what is true. And what he's been given to say. And his opening good part that we're going to look at, it's not even unique to him. So when he opens with that good news, he's quoting one of the other prophets. Micah, maybe. Could be Micah. It's right there in Micah chapter 3. Um, it could have come from one of the prophets earlier. We're not really sure. But it seems he's saying this has already been said and it's true. But 
you don't believe it. And so since you don't believe it, here's what's going to happen. Okay, so we'll come back and look at the good, true part that's exciting to finish with some nice gospel this morning. But chapter 2, verse 12. For the Lord of hosts has a day. Right? We kind of opened with this idea. There's a day of the Lord. There's a day of judgment. And this day, so far as Isaiah is concerned, is, is, well, a day of punishment. It's against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it, that is the things that are lifted up, shall be brought low. Now, the next few verses are going to be examples of this, but this main idea, you don't necessarily need the examples to get it. It is the idea that haughtiness, arrogance, self-sufficiency, self-love is the real problem. I think most theologians in history, most faithful preachers in history will tell you that the the first sin is pride. It is to think too highly of yourselves. I tend to quibble with that a little bit, by the way. I think the first sin is unbelief. The first sin is to not believe who God really is. And the result of that is pride. That you think you're better than you are because you don't know who God really is. Now, what he's going to talk about, though, as examples of this, what does he mean by things that are high and lifted up? What does he mean by pride? It's going to point out all of the stuff that you would think is good in a country. All of the things you want out of your land. Those are the things he's planning to come and tear down. All the cedars of Lebanon he starts with. Now, uh, he's going to mention Lebanon and Bashan. Two different areas here. Kind of important. These are not Israel. These are enemies of Israel often. Lebanon is part of Syria. And Bashan is on the east side of the Jordan. Maybe you remember King Og. Maybe not. But Og was king of Bashan. And, and they Bashan did not like Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So he's going to mention these two non-Israelite places first. But uh, in, in Lebanon... That's where they would have these massive forests of cedar. And and to this day, I mean, you go down to Home Depot where the wood prices, of course, are higher than they were about 10 years ago. But I'll tell you, you want to buy pine, it's a lot cheaper than if you want to buy cedar. There's a reason for that. Cedar is good wood. It's really good wood. And Lebanon, Syria, they had forests of it. Yeah. And so if you wanted to really build a fine building, a nice palace for yourself, or maybe even a fortress, what would you need? You'd need some big cedar logs. And so, well, good. You know, that's good. It's good for trade. It's good for life to have this. And what does God say? He says, I'm going to burn it. I'm going to tear it down. It's going to be gone. Which, interestingly, they, they don't really have those forests there anymore these days. They are mostly gone. Uh, but really... Him saying he's going to tear down the cedars of Lebanon. Here that is, I'm going to knock out Assyria. I'm going to knock out Syria, Damascus. They're not going to be there anymore. They're, they're high and lifted up against all the oaks of Bashan. Okay, so there's Bashan, Og, king of Bashan. Uh, this is probably talking about kind of the Samaria Ephraimite area of Israel in which they have given up their belief system and they are worshiping false gods. They're worshiping, worshiping Baal. Uh, uh, just like the Canaanites did before they came into the land. So God is going to go against those who do not believe in him. 
But now he continues on. He says, against all the lofty mountains, Bashan, by the way, is a mountainous region, and the mountains of Bashan are higher than the mountains of Zion, right? There's a mountain range that Jerusalem is in the middle of, and it's, it's mountains, but it's not as big as the mountains of Bashan. Perhaps you also remember the story of the woman at the well who has seven husbands who Jesus talks to during the daytime and tells her everything about her life. And she says, oh, he's a prophet, tells everybody else. At one point, she says, our ancestors say we should worship on this mountain. Yeah, that's the mountains of Bashan. Yeah, and Jesus is like, no, no, Mount Zion, that's where you should be. Okay, so again, there's, there's a, a theme here. I'm going to knock out your enemies, Israel. But look, I'm also knocking out the things that ought to be good. Cedars, strong mountaintops, all the uplifted hills. And now, again, things that ought to be good. Every high tower. A high tower is built for defense. I know right now you have a door that locks at your home. Maybe you have an alarm system. Maybe you have a puppy. Maybe you have trust that the sheriffs and the police will get you to get there to save you. All of that's new. Well, maybe not the puppy, but all, all the rest of it is new. Yeah. Back in the day, if you wanted a fence, you needed to be inside a big wall. Not your house wall, but a city wall. And if the city really needed to defend itself, it would have towers on that wall. This was essential to life if you wanted to protect yourself from bandits. Here God says, I'm taking it away. And again, to you, Judah, to you, Jerusalem, I'm taking it away against every fortified wall. I'm going to tear it down against all the ships of Tarshish. That's trade. That's just trade. The ships of Tarshish were, were used for going all over uh, the Mediterranean and the Red Sea around the coasts of Arabia in order to trade for spice and, and uh, salt and gold and all the different things people could want. God's going to tear that down too. Against all the beautiful craft. I'm just not going to let you go get what you want anymore, he says. Because all of this is leading to, verse 17, the haughtiness of man. Right? You think you're safe because you have a wall. You think you're safe because you have a, a market account. Yeah. You think you're safe from who? Who's in charge? Yeah. From God himself. Yeah. The lofty pride of men shall be brought low. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. There's that day of the Lord concept again. And verse 18, here's the real issue. All the idols shall pass away utterly. Um, idolatry is a, a fascinating concept to tinker with. I think as Lutherans, we, we have the generally right idea. Dr. Luther is pretty good about this in his catechism. He, he explains how idolatry is a matter of the heart. Idolatry is not a matter of just having a statue. We, we got a statue. It's right there. Jesus is sitting right there on the cross as a statue. It's not an idol. We don't worship it. And if you do, I'm going to tell you, put no trust in that piece of wood to do anything for you. Yeah. All it does is remind you of the one who did do something for you. So idolatry isn't just statuary. And yet there's this weird thing in which images, because the word idol does just as Greek, it means picture. Uh, images, including statuary, can have a fascinating power over us as human beings. And we tend to trust in, in images. In fact, uh, most of the idols that are just of your heart, you know, that you have this thing that you, you really won't let go of, you picture it in your head when you won't let go of it. 
and, and in the world today, the things that people want to give their heart and life to, the things that they chase, they are often represented by images. Now, I think one of the idols of my own like lifetime has been the, the image of Captain America. Not that I sat there and worshipped Captain America, but I pictured that individual as someone I thought we all should be. And I wanted a world filled with men like that. And see how that's not bad? Except for that when I try to make that happen, when I seek that as my ultimate being, I've lost something as opposed to seeking the Christ who was crucified for me. And, and really, what am I worshiping if I am worshiping Captain America? Not, not, not Cap. I'm worshiping the flag. I'm worshiping the state. I'm worshiping the nation. Now, again, maybe this is a bit deep here, but uh, in the book of Revelation, it's very clear. There's only two idols, really. There's your state and there's your church. Those are the two idols. Wait, isn't church good? Yes, the church of Jesus is good. But this is not that, this building. And our voters assembly is not that. And our budget is not that. And yet those are the things that tend to move us. Those are the things we would, we would not give up. In fact, we'll give up the word of Jesus in the scriptures very quickly as long as we can keep our building. We'll give up the word of scriptures very quickly as long as we can have the music we like. As long as we can keep doing it the way we've always done it before. Yeah? Again, idolatry. It's a fascinating thing to tinker with. It's about putting your trust anywhere other than the word and sacraments of Jesus Christ. And all the wrath against the haughtiness of man is meant to tear it down so that sitting there at the bottom with no other thing to grab to, to feel strong with, you have no choice but to say, oh, Jesus, have mercy on me. Now, can I make this like really blatant right away? If the United States of America has fallen on some pretty tough times, it's kind of a wake-up call then, isn't it? Where's your hope? Where's your hope? All right, turn back to uh, chapter 2, verses 2 through 5. Let's, let's end with the good news. I told you, bad news and good news, right? The good news is this, in the latter days, when the idols pass away, it's going to be kind of kind of awesome. Just because God tears down your tower and tears down your Lebanon cedars doesn't mean he's tearing down you entirely. He's taking away your idols and giving you no choice but to call upon him so that he can bring you into the place he'd rather have you be. Now it says, verse 2, it shall come to pass in the latter days. This really is absolutely end of the world kind of talk. That the mountain of the house of the Lord, that's Jesus, shall be established as the highest of the mountains. Remember how I said that Mount Zion is shorter than the mountains of Bashan, right? But here he's saying that on the last, last, last day, the highest mountain there will be is where Jerusalem is. Now, again, I'm going to go deep very fast here for a moment, but it's, it's kind of a major idea. I want you to catch this. The body of Jesus Christ is Mount Zion now. He is higher than all the mountains. And when you feast upon his flesh and his blood, you are brought to that latter day place right now. 
So yes, on the day of, of resurrection, will we be on a new heavens and a new earth with a great mountain city that we get to dwell in? It seems that way. It looks that way. But don't assume it's not already here. All this bit about the latter days coming to us, it is the last day that we're looking forward to, but it is also already the deposit of faith you have in the body of Jesus Christ. So it shall come to pass in the latter days that Jesus Christ will be high and lifted up, established as the highest of the mountains, lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. That's what the church is. All the peoples of the world going to Jesus. On the last day when we're resurrected in our bodies, we'll all walk up to his temple together and sit there and stare at him and hear him preach to us good news and he'll feed us. We'll celebrate. Yeah? Many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. Notice the, like, the layered mountainscape here, right? Again, right? it's about now, it's about then. It was about then when they were living in Jerusalem too. Right? There's these layers of foothills as we're going up. So cling to the one that's right here for you now. You said it this morning, didn't you? I mean, maybe not. We have to go to church this morning. Get up. Come on, let's go. Let's get in the car. Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord. You, you said it. And yet on the last day, it'll be even more clear. It'll be even more pure. You won't have to use gasoline to get here. Uh, let us go up that he may teach us his ways that we may walk in his paths. That's exactly what's happening right now. You're being brought into that marvelous reality of the word of God, which is living and active, regenerating your soul to see the righteous way. And the righteous way is to know that God has you blood-bought in Jesus Christ right now. He's going to see you through this veil of tears to the final peak of the mountain on the day of resurrection. And on that day, all the more, you'll say, well, let's go, let's go hear some more. Let's go sing some more. Let's go feast some more. For out of Zion, it says, end of verse 3, out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord. That's the word of Jesus from Jerusalem. Now, here's one of those places where law doesn't mean law and gospel. This just means the word of God. You know that because it says the word next, right? Torah, the revelation of what God has said. Out of Zion shall go the truth. Out of Jerusalem shall go the everlasting reality. He is risen. Hallelujah. It's happened. It's happened. And here you are. The word of God from Jerusalem coming to you, judging between the nations, deciding the disputes of many people, forgiving your sins, announcing to you that it's all been paid for. Yeah. Now, don't get me wrong. There's still a last day coming. There's still a judgment that will be harsh for those who don't trust in Jesus. But see, you're on the other side of that already by faith. The beauty of this is that you're standing on the mountain. And then there's this beautiful language at the end of verse 4. I know I know you probably love it when it gets here. It sounds so nice. It belongs on a card. You know, They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. That's kind of how you know we're still waiting. War is still here. I don't even have to talk about which one. It's going to still be here. Sometimes when I get nostalgic for the America I thought I loved, I miss 1993, maybe 1995. Guess what? There was threat of nuclear war then too. Guess what? We were in the Middle East fighting 
wars than two. Nothing changes. Uh, the, the names change, but the man doesn't. The wars keep coming. They're going to keep coming. And yet, already, you have been made a people of peace. Now, it's an important conversation we don't have time with for this morning. Like, like there's a place in the Christian man's life specifically for violence. There's a place for it. Now, maybe you don't have to see it because you can buy the cow in the supermarket already cut up for you. But if you couldn't do that and you had the chicken in the backyard and you need to make some soup, you're going to have to cut his head off. You have to do a little violence. Okay. There's a place for that in this veil of tears. And there's a place for that when the Christian man says, you know what? I'm going to be a police officer. I'm going to stop wicked men from doing what they do. And to do that, he's going to have to exercise violence. And there's a place for that when you're a father and you have a home filled with a family and you wake up at night and you find someone in your home who doesn't belong there and he's a threat to you. There's a place for violence. Doesn't make it good, doesn't mean you want it. And that's the key here. The key of being a people of peace is that you want peace. David talks about it this way. And remember, David's a man of blood. That's why he doesn't get to build the temple. But he talks about it this way in in the Psalms. He says, I am for peace. But when they speak, they are for war. You still live in that world. And yet, here it is, the hope You're not going to live in that world forever. The world which is going to be has already come in the body of Jesus Christ. He is going to, again this morning, enter into your own body physically and locally to bind you to himself in his everlasting resurrection with the peace that passes understanding and the promise that you're heading toward a world in which you won't need a sword. And so now, I mean, it doesn't, you know, leave your sword on the wall if you got one. That's fine. But look forward to the day when you won't need it. Talk about that day with your kids. Remind them of how mercy is better than sacrifice. Be the people who have that light of Jesus Christ as knowledge and wisdom inside of us. And in that way, then, when you watch the nations collapse and fight and do all the stuff they always do all around you, don't be so thrown off. It's just the way it's always been. The idols are always falling. Jesus is always casting down those who are high and lifted up and proud of their own right. But see, you humbled before him, you meek of the earth, you hungry for righteousness, you know the promise. You know that in the latter days, that is on the day of Jesus' death and resurrection, everything got turned upside down. And when he came back out of the grave, there was a new mountain, more than that, a new planet, a new, a new cosmos. He is risen. Alleluia. In Jesus' name. Amen.